Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. And if you would stand with me as we read God's word, Jonah, chapter 4, verses, chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. And this is God's word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, lift your hands with me in prayer. Lord, we come again to you with empty hands, and we ask that you would fill them. From your word, we pray that you would give us grace, that you would give us direction, that you would challenge us that we would allow our lives to come under the transforming power of your word. Direct us and guide us. And we pray that you would fit us more to live in this city for the benefit of others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we were introduced to the book of Jonah. We are starting a new series in the book of Jonah, and we're going to be focusing on the mission of God. What is it that God has put us on this earth to do? What is it that God has put us on this earth to be? What is our purpose? I believe that these things are answered in Jonah, and we are starting off with a book that, let's be honest, Most of us only know it because of that extraordinary scene where this man is allegedly swallowed by a fish, right? But last week, I suggested to you that this book, its its message to us 
is often obscured by that scene. But we need to latch on to the truth of this book. And this book is trying to confront God's people with their responsibility to participate in God's mission in the world. To put this another way, we have a role to play in spreading God's love in the world and bringing God's word to the world in caring about the world. And we have a sort of negative contrast in Jonah. And as we read this story, we started off last week talking about the call of Jonah, how Jonah was a hometown hero because he was doing his prophetic ministry in Israel at first. He was dealing with his own people, people who were like him, people who shared his sensibilities and his values and ate the same food that he ate and and spoke the same language that he spoke. But then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and that word was this, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Go to those people, those people that you despise. Those people that you think aren't worthy. Those people that you loathe in your heart because you think you're better than them. Go to those people who are across a religious border. Go to those people who are across an ethnic and cultural border. Go to those people who are across a geographic border and tell them my word. Warn them and tell them that there is hope if they turn. And normally when a prophet gets a word from the Lord, it says the word of the Lord came to so-and-so and and then so-and-so got up and did what the Lord told them to do. But that's not what we have in Jonah. It's sort of comical, but it's sad because it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah and Jonah got up and went in the exact opposite direction. It was like the Lord said, go north on 95 up to Philadelphia and Jonah went south on 95 to Richmond the exact opposite direction. He's running from the call to cross borders with the word of God. And when we left Jonah last week, Jonah was getting on a boat to go to Tarshish, which is all the way over there, all right? All the way over there, away from where he was supposed to be going. And it's through this vehicle that we started to see that this story of Jonah, the runaway prophet, it's not really about the runaway prophet. It's about the expansive heart of God. It's about God's care for those people. Yes, those people that you don't like. Yes, those people that you disapprove of. Yes, God, God wants to include them. God wants to deploy his people and send them to those people so that those people can become his people. That's what God wants from you Christian. That's what God wants from us, Grace Mosaic. He wants us to be faithful to that mission. And the way in which we started off the book is by by tuning our attention to the reality that it's not about the runaway prophet Jonah. It's about the expansive heart of God. And the runaway prophet Jonah is shining a light on the greater prophet, Jesus Christ, who crosses borders in love and faithfulness to show the world what God really cares about and what God is really like in all of his love. It's about the greater prophet. And so that's what we can expect in this book. And we continue this morning in the next passage, the next scene. And what we're gonna gonna see this morning 
we're going to consider the dynamics of God's mission. Last week, we saw the paradigm. Jesus is the paradigm of the mission. And Jonah serves as, as a, a contrast to help us appreciate Jesus. This morning, we're going to see the dynamics of God's mission. And what we're going to learn is that we got to consider the situation of the world and the situation of the church. So let's look at our first point, the situation of the world. When we look at verse 4, there is a shift in the scene. And all of a sudden, we're, we're setting the, the, the context of the story. And this drives the, the, the message all the more. We find ourselves on a boat. Can you enter into the story with me for a minute? We're on a boat, and, and, and we get this piece of information that God had hurled a storm onto the sea. And, and here we are on the boat. And it's like, if you're watching the movie, it's like the camera is on this, this scene where these, these sailors, these mariners, are in the middle of all kind of pandemonium because this storm has broken out. And we get the sense from the story that, you know, these men, they're experienced mariners. This wasn't their first time on the sea. They had, they had experienced you know, storms and, and harsh weather, but we get the sense from the narrative that this was a storm unlike anything they'd ever seen. And they are terrified. They, they are terrified. And what they don't realize is that they've been caught up into the drama of the runaway prophet, all right? The key piece of information is that God has brought the storm. And, and, and we get this distinct sense that this is a storm unlike anything they've ever experienced. But verse five not only advances the narrative tension, but it teaches us something about the situation of the world. I think that when we look at what's happening on this boat, it's like a microcosm of life in this world for us. What we see on this boat is a microcosm of the, the relationship between the church and the world. And I think that it's a challenging word for the church. I think it's a challenging word. Look at verse five. What do we learn first about the situation of the world, our non-Christian neighbors. Verse five, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled that cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. This first phrase, it just tells us a lot about these, these mariners who are stand-ins, representatives for the world around us. The first thing that we see from this text is that every human being is deeply religious at bottom. Everyone, everyone you know is deeply religious at bottom. Everybody is looking to something for salvation from something. Everybody. Everyone is looking to something for salvation from something. They're religious. Look at this. Look at this passage. Here we have a diverse international group of mariners who are turning to multiple gods for salvation from the storm. But can't you see that every person on your block and every person at your job and every person in your neighborhood in this city is looking to something for salvation from something? Now, they may not worship multiple gods, right? That, that's, that would be strange in D.C. today. But certainly they have functional gods, they have functional gods, things that they look to and they treat it with a sort of divine status and, and they see it as something that is able to rescue them from this threatening thing. For example, people in D.C. turn to success. 
And they cry out to success for salvation from insecurities. People in D.C. turn to money. And they cry out to money for salvation from discomfort and suffering. People in D.C. turn to productivity. And they cry out to productivity for salvation from a sense of worthlessness. People in D.C. turn to Mr. or Mrs. Wright, and they cry out to Mr. or Mrs. Wright for salvation from their loneliness. We all have things that rule our lives. You don't even have to try. It's just impulsive. It's built into our hardwiring as human beings. We're all looking to something, and we're saying to that thing, please save me. This thing will make me whole. This thing will make me right. This thing can guide my life. For some people, it's politics. For some people, it's their children, their spouse, a relationship. This thing can make me whole. This thing can save me. We learn that from the Mariners. That's what I mean by religious. We're all religious. Everyone. The world around you, your neighbors in D.C., are religious. The second thing I think we learn from this text is that the world is largely consumed by fear. Is it not? I mean, observe, pay attention. The immediate occasion of fear in this text is obviously the storm. But take a step back and consider how easily this translates into today. Can I get the job? Now that I have the job of my dreams, can I keep it? Will my boss like me? Will my coworkers approve of me? Will I be able to advance? We fear not getting the things that we want, and then when we get them, we fear losing them. Will I be able to get enough money? You get the money. Will I be able to keep it? Will I be able to invest it right? Will my 401k turn out okay? Ah! Right? Fear. Fear. How was my health? What if the doctor says that this thing I have is serious? What's going to happen to my kids? What's, gonna, what's happening in our country right now? Things are going haywire. What's up with all the hurricanes and, 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 and earthquakes? And, and There are scary things out there in the world. And as we've said before, even the things that aren't scary in and of themselves can be made scary depending on what's going on in your heart. Ask anyone in this room who has kids, when they first have their relationship, life is good. They're in the you know, house or the apartment by themselves. You know, everything is all good. Then you have kids and coffee tables are assassins. Look at the corner of that table. That's dangerous. Someone's gonna get hurt here. You know, like, you know, you start looking at that, the, the little stuffed animals. You're like, I don't know, Elmo got a hard head. He might hurt somebody, you know. Everything becomes scary and dangerous. We know that. It's not, we, we know the fears ourselves. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or not, but certainly everyone in our city today that, that are our neighbors and their coworkers are consumed by fear. I think we learn this from this text. We're afraid when we can't control things. We're afraid when we don't know things. We're anxious about what others think of us. But take a closer look at the text. Take, take a closer look at the text. This group of international polytheistic, that means they believed in many gods. These mariners are calling on various gods because they believe that one of the gods is angry. 
And they're trying to play bingo to try and figure out which God they made mad and to try and, try and appease that God. That's, that's the way they're living. That, that's what they're doing. In other words, the source, check this out, the source of the mariner's fear is that they have no confidence that they're calling on gods who care about them. That's at the root of it. Yes, the storm is scary. But at the end of the day, they're directing that fear toward the gods because they believe the gods are trying to get them. They didn't know any such thing as a god who cares about people. That wasn't even in their lexicon. That wasn't in their dictionary. That wasn't in their encyclopedia of considerations about gods. They, much less a god who loved people. No, the gods were, were terrifying the gods were cavalier. They, they might smoke you for nothing. The gods were scary. They didn't know any such thing as a god who would call himself father. They didn't know any such thing as a god who would be concerned with the intimate details of their lives. They were terrified at bottom because they did not have a conception of a god who cared about them. Is that not where a lot of people find themselves today, right? A lot of people, you know, they, they, they came up with a view of God, that God is out to get them, that, that, that God cannot be trusted. They come up, they're suspicious of God. And if we're being honest and we're admitting our faults and not trying to be pretenders, we know that oftentimes the church has contributed to these false views that people have, because we have stunk it up, haven't we? Yeah, we're all guilty. We have all failed in many ways to, to help people to come into an accurate view of what God is like and, and what God is about. We have, we have failed. Lastly, I think one, one final thing I think we see in this text is that the world is desperate. And I get that from the passage that, that we just read. Look at it. It says, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. The sailors are grabbing cargo from every part of the ship in order to throw it overboard to help the ship stay afloat. They're, they're hoping that somehow, some way, they'll be able to, to, to survive this voyage with their lives. Forget about all the money. Forget about all the valuables that are sinking to the bottom of the sea. They were desperate and they would try anything to just survive. How many people in our neighborhoods are living lives, as Thoreau would say, of quiet desperation? They're desperate for friendship, desperate for a change. Desperate for help. Desperate for relief from something. They are desperate. We know that desperation, don't we? We see these men are desperate. And as the picture develops in the text, as we, as we take stock of the situation of the world as represented in the mariners, a piercing question comes to us, friends. It's just three little pieces of data. But we're being invited the narrator is, is showing us a lot of information about these mariners. Look at them. They're deeply religious. They're consumed by fear, and they're desperate. But you know what the question that's really coming out at us? You know what it is? Where is the church? Where are God's people situated in this picture? 
That brings us to our second point and final point, the situation of the church. As we follow the prophet Jonah in this passage, an embarrassing and shameful picture emerges. Now look, think of it as like a movie. The, the, the camera's focused on the pandemonium, if this is the ship, right? The, 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 the story's focused on the pandemonium that's taken place on the deck of the ship. But then it's as if the camera pans down, all of the craziness has happened. The waves are breaking over the, over the mast, and, 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 and there's water spraying everywhere, and they can barely see, and, and the winds are howling, and the ship is pitching, and it's crazy up here. And then the camera pans down, and where do we find Jonah? Asleep in the bottom of the boat. Verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. First he's running from Nineveh. Now he's sleeping on the mariners. He is completely detached and distant from the mariners and their problems because he's too busy trying to escape his own problems and drama. Do you see the stinging indictment in this text? It comes in the irony, y'all. Verse 6, look at verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The Lord's prophet is rebuked by the world's pagan. Do you see that? The prophet rebuked by the pagan. This is how the narrator is framing up the sting that you and I are meant to enter into as, as the church. This is, this is an amazing picture. He's trying to escape his own problems, and he's rebuked by the pagan. While the mariners were gripped in fear, while they're experiencing the terrifying effects of the storm, while they're calling on false gods who could not save, while they're desperately throwing precious cargo from the boat in an effort to spare their lives, God's prophet is asleep. But as we observe the passivity of Jonah, as we grow more disgusted with the Lord's prophet, the haunting question of the text comes back to you and I. Are we paying attention to the people in our boat? Are we paying attention? Do we even care? Or are we distanced from their concerns? Are we distanced from their pain and scary circumstances? Are we disregarding their situation? This is, this is the indictment. Are we disregarding our neighbors, our coworkers, the poor, the immigrant, the fatherless orphans of our city, or are we asleep, completely detached from those people and their problems? Sorry, but I got my own stuff. That's what the picture of Jonah is. I mean, imagine it. He has all this stuff on his mind. God's calling me to go to Nineveh. Man, I ain't going to Nineveh. I'm going to... I'm like, man, this is drunk. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't, you know, he's all in his head about his life and his problems. And these people above board, he, he finally falls asleep in his own little world to the complete disregard and neglect of the mariners above. 
Listen, I know that it's become popular for people to talk about faith as if it's some private affair. We've heard that, right? Spirituality and faith are a private thing. But we're called to take our faith outward for the public good. We're called to use our faith, to deploy our faith for the public good. And look at the text. The sailor rebukes Jonah for not using his faith for public good. He's not using the resources of his faith to help the sailors. Do you see what the sailor says? Get up, call on your God. Use the resources of your faith. What are you doing? You're sitting there passive. Do you see what's ha- Do you even care about us? But look at what happens. Look, look, look. Jonah is not using his faith or his spiritual resources for public good. But but look at what happens when he actually does. This is powerful. Once the sailors discover that Jonah is responsible, that his disobedience has put everyone in danger, look at what they say to him. What is this you have done? How could you do such a thing? How could you be so selfish, so, so hard-hearted, so callous and cold? How could you hate us with such passivity? They don't even know what to do. But verse 12, Jonah says, I'm going to tell you what to do. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I want you to see something in this text. Look at what God is able to do with an unwilling messenger. This entire boat full of sailors comes to know the true God. They're calling on the gods, lowercase g, in the beginning of the story. By the end of it, they're calling on the Lord, the proper name of God, Yahweh. They're calling on him. They're making sacrifices to him. They didn't forget it. You know, a lot of people, when they get into tough times, they get into trouble, then they call on God. The real test of, of, of faith is what you do in the good times. Once you're out of the trouble, right? The picture here of these mariners is once they get off the boat and they're back to shore, they're safe. They then commit to a life of worship to the Lord. This is what God is able to do with an unwilling messenger. And the invitation is to consider what could God do with willing messengers? What could God do with willing people who would willingly give themselves for their neighbors? What would God be able to do with those who are willing to make sacrifices in love toward the people around them. We're invited to dream and consider what God could do with willing and active messengers. Look, here's the deal. We don't know what Jonah's motives were for for telling the men to throw him overboard. We don't know what the motives were. Scholars are conflicted. They don't know if he was suicidal, if he had a death wish. Or if he had a little bit of, you know, he felt a little compassion for these guys. And he said, all right, well, I'm the cause of the trouble, so just throw me in. We don't know what his motives were, but that's, that's not the point. Look at the big picture here. The big picture is this. This narrative is designed to lead us to the greater prophet, Jesus Christ. 
Look, Jesus Christ came to an international group of pagans who had brought the storm of God upon themselves. This is a different story that we're led to. Jesus finds us, we brought the storm upon ourselves. What storm? The storm of God's judgment for our sin and our rebellion against him. Every one of us, none of us can get off the hook for our guilt before God. We don't love him as we should. We don't love other people as we should. We don't serve other people the way we were meant to serve them. We don't care about people the way we were meant to care about them. Our minds don't work right. We think of selfish and devious things. We slander people. We use our words to hurt other people. Our, we don't, our emotions betray us. We have desire for things that we shouldn't, and we don't have desire for things that we should. We all know what it's like to have brought the storm of God upon ourselves. This is the group that Jesus comes to. Look at the picture. It's an international group of people. When we were crying out in pandemonium, looking to this and to that, help me, save me money, save me prestige, save me career, help me. It was in that moment that the true and greater prophet came to us in the midst of all the pandemonium of our lives, and he rescued us. The sailors had a question. Will God give a thought to us that we may not perish? <laughs> Do you hear the desperation in their voices in this text? What you need to see is this. In Jesus, in the gospel, that question mark is turned into an exclamation point. Yes, he does care for us. He has given a thought to us, and we see it in the gospel. We see that God cares to save us from the storm, the greater storm of judgment, but even the lesser storms that we have to navigate in this life. And if he doesn't take the storm away, he guides us through it. We see his faithfulness in it all. God has given a thought to us and we will not perish. When Jonah confessed the fact that he was responsible for the disaster, the pagans turned to him and said, what is this you have done? How could you do such a thing? How could you be so selfish, so hard-hearted, so cold and cruel and passive toward us? But as Jesus confesses to us in his word, his responsibility for our salvation, we can only turn to him and say, what is this you have done? How could you be so loving? How could you be so gracious and merciful toward people like us? How could you be so active in love toward a people that is so wayward and selfish? How could you love us so much? And here's the deal. Though Jonah's motivations for going overboard are fuzzy, the motivations of Jesus for throwing himself into the storm of God are crystal clear. We don't know why Jonah did it, but we know why Jesus did it, to bring glory to the Father by bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's why he did it. It was because of his love. He loved the Father and did the Father's will, and he loved us and brought us home. That's true love. Don't allow misdefinitions of love to guide you. This is love. Love seeks the good of the other even when it hurts, even when it... It calls you to die to yourself. That's what love is like. That's what love does. That's how love functions. We see true love in Jesus. He was thrown into the storm to bring us home. And, and listen, these sailors 
were caught up into the drama of the runaway prophet. But can you put a price tag on what it means to be caught up into the drama of this prophet, Jesus? To be caught up into the drama, caught up into the story of love, knowing that your story now can have a happily ever after. Knowing that you're headed for the tearless day. Knowing that you're headed for all things made new. Knowing that you're headed for an inheritance that is incorruptible, unfading, imperishable. Knowing that you are headed for that day where there is supreme joy forevermore. Where nothing will cloud your delight. That's good news. That's good news. And here's the deal. We need to look again at what God has done in this text through an unwilling and passive messenger. And then we need to allow this text to turn around on us and ask the question, what could God do with us if we became willing and active messengers? Willing and active agents. What if we started to care about the people on the boat? Who's in your boat? Who's in your world? Who's in your space right now? God is saying to you, you're here for them. You are not here for yourself. You're here for them. Who? Those people. Which people? Yes, even the people you don't like. Even the people that disgust you. Even the people that make you mad. Even the people that that make you like this when you see what they put on social media and on the news. You're here for them. You are not here for yourself. You are here for them. And if we become willing participants, willing messengers, it will be a game changer. Not only for them, but for us as well. Let's ask God to help us to be willing to open up our lives. Even though the people are different from us. Even though they don't share our sensibilities. Even though they don't have our value system. Those aren't prerequisites to our call to love them. They don't have to pass some kind of test before the call to love activates. Let's ask God to help us to consider the dynamics of the mission, the position of the world, and the position of the church, and let us as a church, our local church, Grace Mosaic, let us be found in the mix with our people on the boat. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for each one of my friends, my family in here this morning. Thank you that you give us the words of life, that you challenge us. You love us so much that you'll correct our course when we're heading in selfish and self-destructive ways. We thank you for Jesus. We are grateful for what he has done to save us from the great storm of your judgment. And we pray, Lord, that from a place of freedom and love, from a place of gratitude, we would move toward our friends and our neighbors in this world, knowing that you alone can change hearts, but we are called to love and dialogue, engage and bear witness to your redeeming power. So help us, we pray, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. We have time to open up for one.